Well, good morning, Branch Church, and good morning all of our Branch Church family online. It is an absolute blessing and pleasure to be with you this morning and to end our year together in worship. And now as we transition into hearing and receiving God's word this morning, I'm delighted to do that with you as well. Consider the following examples, and I want you to think, what do these have in common? A fire firehouse burns down. A police station gets robbed. A pilot is afraid of heights. A school teacher, an English teacher, has poor grammar. A, a, mother, a mother considers her children lazy, but then finds out all along they were secretly making her a present. What do all these have in common? These are examples of situational irony. Situational irony happens when the opposite of what you expected occurs. You expect one thing and then something totally different happens. Have you ever had that in your life? I've, got, I've had a bunch of examples. I, I grew up hated reading. Anybody feel me on that one? I hated reading. Guess what I love now? Reading. I got a book by my bed. I will read. I love reading. Another one, this is, this is one I've been waiting like 16 years to tell. Are you ready for this? So I played football at San Diego State. I know you know that. And I was a kicker, but I left San Diego State and I went to Grossmont College as like a second chance to play kicker again and to see if I could get a scholarship somewhere else. When I was there at Grossmont, I ended up at the end of the year holding the football for the other kicker. <laughs> and I watched him in part kick his way to a scholarship at the University of Washington. I remember leaving that game going, this would be a great, I was a Christian now, this would be a great sermon illustration someday. And I finally got to tell it. <laughs> the Bible employs irony as one of its many tools to get its message across. And possibly, perhaps, no greater picture of irony happens than in Jesus's death. You see, his death, it surely looked like a criminal dying under the law. It surely looked like this guy was cursed under God's curse. But John writes in John 19 and he tells us this is irony. Actually, the very opposite was happening. And so today as we read John chapter 19, we are back in the gospel of John after our Christmas season. We are gonna learn this, that Jesus's death is Jewish rejection, but it is God's redemption according to the scriptures. At the very same time, it looks like he's a criminal. He's actually redeeming God's people, accomplishing his plan of salvation, all according to the scriptures. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 19. We pick up in John 19 in the middle of the story. Pilate has found Jesus innocent. He wants to release him. And so he's trying to get that done, but the people, the Jewish leaders, they cry out, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas instead. We'd rather have a murderer and an insurrectionalist out on the streets than Jesus himself. So Pilate's in a quandary. What's Pilate going to do? John 19 is gonna detail that for us. John 19, beginning in verse one. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. 
What does Pilate do after the people don't want to release him? He flogs him. Now, there are three different types of flogging that could have happened here. Learn something new every day, right? I thought there was one. No, there was actually multiple levels. I'll tell you two of them. There is a really light level where you get kind of a light flogging, a light whipping as a warning, and then they'd let you go. And then there's the more severe whipping, the one we think of in the Passion of the Christ. Have you seen it? We probably think of the flogging here as that more severe one. But D.A. Carson argues, and I agree with him, this is not the more severe flogging here. Because the severe flogging is usually followed by punishment, such as crucifixion. He's not condemned to be crucified, nor is he crucified at this point in time. So the flogging here is probably something light. Why is Pilate doing this? Well, he's going to present him out in a minute, and he wants them to get off his back. Look what I did. I whipped him. Can we just forget and move on? Maybe even have some sympathy for the guy. Give me a break. But Pilate is going to soon find out they only have one goal. Only one thing will satisfy them, and that will be the death of Jesus. Now, during this time too, Jesus is mocked. He is shamed. They come before him and they decide to have a little bit of a craft time and they take thorns. These thorns could be up to 12 inches long. And they twist it together into a crown and then they put it on his head, presumably digging into his head to stay there and then blood would be coming down his face. My neighbor's tree goes from his yard into my yard. And I call it the most cursed tree on earth because it has these thorns that are a half inch to an inch long. They're wicked. They're wicked. I feel like when God cursed the earth in Genesis, like this tree, this tree is it. I even thought about cutting off a branch and showing you, but I just didn't get around to it. You, you touch it anywhere, that thing will just cut you. Not only did they have the thorn, they brought a purple robe. They fell down before him. And the verb tells us that they kept doing this. Hail, King of the Jews, slap. Hail, King of the Jews, pop right across his face. This wasn't a one-time thing. This was ongoing. How many times? We don't know, but they kept doing it. Why? What's going on here? They're making fun of him. They're making fun of him as a king. In a Roman eye, look at this pathetic Jewish king who can't even stand up for himself. Hail, King of the Jews slap. Can you imagine if we saw children take their father, tie him up and begin to make fun of him as their dad? Hail man of the house. Hail man of the house. That's in a sense what's happening here. If you go to the beginning of John chapter one and you follow the story all the way to John chapter 19, who is it they're making fun of? Their maker. They're making fun of their creator. They are hitting They are shaming their creator. It's one thing to be made fun of by one person. It's a whole nother to be made fun of by a group of people. A football player drops the ball. He's called Butterfingers the rest of his life. That's embarrassing. Someone stands up and misspells a word in school. They're called Einstein the rest of their life. Jesus. Well, I'll tell you one of mine. When I was in like fourth, fifth grade, I wore these spandex shorts to school. Now, they weren't like really tight ones. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But, <laughs> but they were made of all spandex. And they started calling me spandex boy. I know, pretty mean, huh? Kids don't make fun of each other. It's not nice. And that's nothing compared to what Jesus is feeling now, being mocked. And ironically, he actually 
is their king as they are doing this to him. Verse four, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is either the second or the third time in the story where Pilate pronounces him innocent. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Pilate, when he brings him out and announces, behold the man, what is he doing? D.A. Carson says it better than I could. It, it, the sense is this, behold the man, pathetic, broken, bloody, beaten. Guys, give me a break. Can we just let him go and move on? Pilate wants this out of here. He doesn't want any more trouble. Verse six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. I think that's the third time. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to the law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. We're finally getting to the heart of it. The Jews were trying to get Jesus in trouble on political reasons because Rome doesn't care about their theological, biblical law. So they have to present Jesus as doing something bad on a political. He says he's a king and there's no king, right? Except for Caesar. So you, you got to do something about it, Pilate. But finally they reveal to us, he makes himself the son of God. What's ironic here is Jesus does not make himself. He actually is the son of God. And if only they would have seen it in his actions, what did Jesus do in this gospel? He turned water into wine, thus revealed his glory. He healed someone who could not walk. He gave sight to someone who couldn't see. He raised Lazarus from where? The dead. These are all acts of the divine God. If they could only see it, he spoke the words of God. We saw in John 5 that the father is always working and so is the son. What the son says and does is what the father says and does. He wasn't making himself to be anyone. He was the son of God. Now watch what happens to Pilate. Verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate is, a, why is Pilate afraid now after hearing this statement? D.A. Carson, he points out this. The term son of God is loaded. To a Jewish ear to hear this would have some idea of a Messiah. There's some kind of Messiah or divine prerogative someone's saying. To a Greco-Roman ear, which is Pilate, this gives understanding of some kind of man with some kind of divine power. And so Pilate's like, who did I just whip? Who is this guy I just whipped? Because if he's like Superman, I might be in trouble. Now this illustration is for you kids. Are you ready? In the movie Aladdin, Princess Jasmine, she leaves the palace and she goes out into the streets with Aladdin, having a good time until Aladdin gets busted. Palace guards find him, they take him and she's not having it. So she reveals who she is. She throws off her hood and says, unhand him by order of the princess. And the palace guards start getting fearful. Oh, what did we just do? What's going on? Right? That's kind of how Pilate is feeling in this moment. He's afraid. And so he's going to take Jesus back behind closed doors and he's going to have a talk with him. Verse nine, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I love Jesus's conversations with Pilate. 
because in them, Pilate is constantly called to recalculate the situation. Pilate, let's put this in uh, terms you can understand. We're going to talk about authority and sin. Your authority, it's not yours. It comes from God. Therefore, you bear the responsibility to exercise that authority before God is one accountable to him. And speaking of sin, the Jews are committing a greater sin here and handing me over to you. You, re you recognize that I'm innocent. Put all that together. What should you really do with me? He should release Jesus, but he doesn't. At least not at this point, right? Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. This is Emperor, Roman Emperor Caesar, who was above all the Roman world, Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic it's called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, he brings Jesus out again. He's going to present Jesus to them. Instead of saying, behold the man, he says, behold the king. Behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered one of the saddest statements in the entire Bible. We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate is still wanting to release Jesus. And the Jews, they go for the jugular. They go right at Pilate. If you release him, we're going to tell Caesar on you. Now you think as Roman governor Pontius Pilate, he wouldn't have a problem with this. Shh, get out of here. But Pilate has had notorious trouble with the Jews from the day he stepped into Judea. He, when he first got there, decided to flex his muscles. And so he had the military carry their standard, their military flag, legionnaire, come into their temple. The Jews lost it. No, get out of here. We're not having this kind of idolatry. He decides to flex his muscle. The Jews said, we'd rather die by the sword than have your flag and your false gods in our temple. Pilate backed down. That was one of their first encounters. So they've had a lot of issues. It seems the Jews have told on him before. He doesn't want it to get out of control because how will his boss feel about that? You obviously can't keep the peace. We're gonna remove you. So Pilate is being seriously pressured here by the Jews to conform to their will. And what does he do? He doesn't listen to Jesus. He doesn't remember what Jesus said about authority and sin. He listens to the Jews to save his own neck, which really is not to save his own neck. It's actually to put it in a place where he will pay for his own sins. Jesus spoke in the gospels. If you desire to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. If you will not, you will not be saved. In these first 16 and a half verses here, we see that message we talked about at the beginning. Jesus's death is Jewish rejection. But why was it Jewish rejection? Because it was unbelief in God. You see, God was their king. God had other human rulers, Davidic rulers and Davidic monarchs come but God was their ultimate king. These were just vassals representing God. And so when they denied God here, John reveals to us the true heart and the nature of this rejection. It wasn't because Jesus truly was a criminal. It wasn't because he was really cursed by God. It was because they lacked faith to follow God. 
Colin Cruz, he points out that the Jews would sing the Hallel Psalms. That's Psalms 113 through 118. And then they'd have a prayer that followed it. And in this prayer, it was a little lengthy, but I'm going to give you the point. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We have no king but thee. They did not really believe that when push came to shove. They denied Jesus because they really didn't believe in the Father. And that's what happens. When people deny Jesus Christ, they are not truly believing in God, the Father, and sending his son. Remember in the gospel, what did God say? You must honor the son as you honor the father. If you will not honor and believe in the son, you reject the father. He takes it very personal and he will not rescue you from your sins because you reject the only way to be saved. Remember chapter one, what did John tell us? He came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. Why is this so significant? Why did John have to write this? Because in this time period, the Christians are saying, we're the people of God. We're saved from our sins. And the Jews would be like, what are you talking about? He died as a criminal and he died as being cursed under God. And how could your savior be dead and, and died? And right, so John has to clarify all this. No, there's irony going on here. There's so much more with this death and what it meant. And thank God he gave us his spirit to illumine us. So we actually understand what his death meant. This is not an ordinary death. This is God's redeeming people, saving us from our sins. And as we're going to see now in the rest of this chapter, all according to the scriptures. Verse 16b, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. Here's what it read. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in three languages, Aramaic in Latin and Greek. Aramaic would have been their common everyday language. Latin would have been the Roman empire official document language. Greek would have been the trade language business language between people. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Jesus is condemned to be crucified. They led him away. It is probably at this point where they minister the severe flogging that you know about and have seen in the Passion of the Christ movie from, I think, 2004. In this flogging, they would have taken leather straps and they would have put either bone or metal, possibly glass, or even a metal ball inside these leather straps. And then multiple guys would have taken turns whipping and hitting him. The whips would have been so hard, they would have ripped skin off and if hit just right, they could rip muscle off your body. This past October, my wife and I and our family, we went to Colorado and visited her sister and her husband and their family. And they got a few acres and I was outside watching his son. He's a nine-year-old boy. He was given permission to whack at this dead aspen tree. And so he had a little ax in his hand and he's just hitting the tree. You know, good young boy, just smacking a tree. And I was intrigued, so I watched him do it. And with every hit, he'd put a dent in the tree. Sometimes he'd put a slice in the tree. And if he hit just right, he might even chip out 
pieces of the tree. I was intrigued. I went and I even tried it myself, right? A big boy wanting to do it. (laughs) And as I think about that, that's what was happening to Jesus. With every hit, he was being dented, bruised, cut, sliced, and chipped into his body in this moment of being flogged. Now, after this moment, he would have been led away to carry his own cross to be crucified. He's not carrying the entire cross. Those pictures are incorrect. He's carrying just just the horizontal beam, the one that would hold his arms. He was so tired, beat up, and exhausted that he wasn't able to carry, and he kept falling. And so Rome pressed into service a passerby named Simon of Cyrene, just on his way in, had no idea, no qualms, no problem. And now he finds himself walking with Jesus, carrying his crossbeam. He goes outside the city, just outside the city walls to a place called the place of a skull. Possibly it's called that because the hill that's being crucified on, it it protrudes out of the ground and looks like a little cross or, or the head of a skull, I'm sorry. Possibly that's why. I wonder if maybe it's not called that because people would die there. So you just get a name like skull. As Jesus was put there, he would be laid on his cross and then he would be nailed to it. He was not nailed in his hands or his palms. He would be nailed through his wrist. I'd like you to take your thumb and if you're able, feel your your right wrist and just kind of wiggle it like this. How sensitive is that spot in your forearm? If you were to even just push too hard with your thumb, I'd want you to stop. That would hurt. Jesus had a nail go through that in his right and his left hand. And not just that, it went through his feet as well. And then they lifted him, hoisted him up, and there he hung on the cross. The charge against him was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was a charge written in three languages so everybody could see it. I think of it like a billboard. You're driving on the freeway. It's in every language. Everybody sees this. Everybody can read it. Everybody knows what's happening. This is shameful. This is embarrassing. And everybody knows about it. This happens with him in between two other people. He's one of three. And then the sign, the Jews come to him and say, we want you to change it. Don't say he is the king. Say he thinks he's the king. Pilate's like, what I've written, I have written. Why doesn't Pilate change this? T.E. Carson, he points this out. Pilate is trying to humiliate them as they humiliated him. (laughs) You guys can eat that. Eat that. Okay, you come at me, not a friend of Caesar, right? Okay, that's not what he did, but you get the idea. You can eat this. You can just live with it. And this matches what we know of Pilate in the first century. Philo, one of the first century writers, he says that Pilate was inflexible. He was this combination of self-will and relentlessness. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, oh, there's something else I need to tell you. As he's hanging on the cross, this is the, the most horrific combination of shame and pain. It's, it's just mind-blowing that the Romans thought this up. So the way in which you would die on the cross was by asphyxiation or suffering. You would slowly not be able to breathe and eventually you would die. Think of a snake squeezing something until it was gone. That's what's happening. So don't do this now, but if you go home, put your hands like this and stretch them out as if your, your hands are holding your body up on something. And then try to take a deep breath right here. It's very difficult. And so in order to breathe on the cross, you would have to push up with your feet. 
thank God I got a breath of air. But as you did that, what happens to your feet? The nail in your feet produces searing pain. Possibly the flogging would scrape against the cross and all of it is just pain. And so now you're in this tension between I can't breathe and my muscles are spasming from holding myself up. This is horrible torture. And you know what the authors point out? They don't point out the pain. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't talk about how much this hurts. They talk about how shameful this is. This is utterly shameful and an honor-shame society. This was the worst and everybody saw it and everybody knew it. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. The tunic was something they would wear close to their body. It's not underwear, it's more like a suit. And then they would wear a belt and shoes and things with it. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to seize who it shall be. Here's what's significant to John. What's happening here is according to the scriptures. Listen, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. John is pointing this out. This is so important. This is Jewish rejection, but it's God's redemption at the same time. It's ironic. Don't miss it. And he goes to Psalm 22, which is a Psalm of David of a righteous suffering servant. The other gospels have talked about it. And now John points it out when they divided up his clothes and they cast lots. This is fulfilling the Davidic scripture. This isn't necessarily a future prophecy, but it was a typological prophecy or a typological fulfillment. That means that David is the king of Israel. Jesus is the son of David, this true king. So what happened to David happens to Jesus, but Jesus becomes the ultimate picture of that happening. So the, the, the scripture is drawing a parallel between Jesus and what happened before. And, and when you do this all throughout scripture, you'll have David, you'll have the Passover, and you put all these together and you go, Jesus fulfills all these things. He's the greatest type of all of these. That's what is meant here by him fulfilling this. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Depending on how you read the Greek, there's either two, three or four women here with him at the cross. I read it as four. You have his mom, her sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, although in the Greek, it just says Mary of Clopas. It doesn't say the wife of. So we presume that it's the wife of. And then lastly, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In the midst of Jesus being given no compassion, he is compassionate. In the midst of suffering, hurting, no compassion from the soldiers, they're taking his clothes, which they were allowed to do according to Roman law here, him being a criminal, criminal, not really, but you get the idea. He's compassionate towards his mom and wants to make sure she's taken care of. This is a great verse to read to your sons and how to treat their mother. I just thought about it this week. He made sure mom was taken care of. John, take care of her. John takes her to the home and she is now taken care of because Jesus made sure of it. And not only that, but in the same, same vein here, or in the same um, scene here, 
Jesus is being shown no faithfulness, yet he is being completely faithful to God. Jesus is being abandoned. These, these people are showing no faith to God, and yet God, Jesus is being completely faithful, even though he's not receiving it. And so this would be a great chance to say, to show us how far we fall from this, right? But I don't wanna say it that way. I wanna say it like this. Look what you could become. Look what you can become in Christ. You can become so compassionate and so faithful that even in the midst of suffering, you can give it even if you're not receiving it. That's the grace of the son of God in your life. You can suffer and still be kind. You can hurt and still be faithful to God even if you are the only one doing it, even if it hurts so terribly bad. Why? Because when the son of God lives in you, he changes you. You are different. How wonderful is the character of the son of God in the midst of this severe suffering. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture. This is dominant now the rest of this chapter. Scripture, God's redemption. This is an important death here. Jesus said, I thirst. Where is this found? What is exactly is he saying? This is tough. We don't know exactly what he might be saying here. Some take this as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just another way of saying it. So I thirst wouldn't be literally, hey, I'm thirsty. Could you get me a cup of water? It's I thirst for God. I'm in the midst of being abandoned by God. I'm experiencing the wrath of God. Another one, I believe it was Psalm 22 again, the same Psalm where David speaks about his tongue being stuck to the roof of his mouth. I'm not sure exactly what John meant here. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Only Jesus can say this. It is finished. What is finished? Salvation. Redemption from your sins. The forgiveness of God. The bridge has been built. Here's you. Here's God. There's an infinite chasm between you as a sinful person and between God and his amazing holiness. Jesus has finished the bridge. He has now made it possible for us to come back to God and to have a relationship with him and know him. This is one of the most beautiful phrases in all of scripture because it's the gospel in a nutshell. It's an abbreviated form of the good news. What's the good news? You have fallen short of the glory of God, but God, instead of giving you judgment, has put judgment on his son and he has rescued you from your sins. Can I get a witness? Are we excited about the good news or what? Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. This is so interesting. The Jews decide they really want to obey Deuteronomy and they don't want a dead body in the land because that would pollute the land. So we got to get that down. And tomorrow's a Sabbath. Sabbath's important. And it's a Sabbath on Passover week. Like we definitely can't have that. They're so concerned about those details and yet they have no problem murdering an innocent person. Oh my goodness. How could you be so concerned about the details, but you're missing the big picture. Don't miss the big picture. Don't miss Jesus. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Why did they want them to break the legs? If your legs are broken, you won't be able to push up on the cross. You will suffocate faster. They took an iron mallet and I'm assuming they went and smacked their kneecaps. For those of you who had knee problems, I'm sorry. You probably felt the twinge there. 
But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Oh, why, why not? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Do you see the repetition? I want you to see this. None of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. They come to Jesus and what do they find? He's already dead. How do we know? They take a spear and they put into a side and a flow of blood and water comes out. Now, medical examiners have looked at this and there's kind of two thoughts here that I see seem to be the most prominent ones. One is that somehow the spear went up high enough and, and the heart may have been punctured. Another one is that there was issues going on between the, the rib cage and, and, and the area just behind it. I forget what it's called. John is not so much concerned about the medical reason here. He's concerned about this fact. He's dead. That's it. This shows that he's dead. Why is that important? Because he died with no bones being broken. Again, if you go back to Exodus, if you go back in, this, in the scriptures, you had to offer the Passover sacrifice to God with no bones being broken. So when Jesus was offered, what is he saying? Look at, look at the old. Do you see all this? King David, that's him. You Passover, that's him. Jesus is fulfilling all of these things. There's a chance he's not referring to Passover. It could be Psalm 34 where God protects the righteous. But I think Passover surely makes a lot of sense. And it seems like it could be it. Verse 38, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Rome would do this. They would give executed criminals' bodies to the next of kin. If the criminal was really bad though, and you committed like sedition and you're rising up against the government, they wouldn't give you the body and they would let vultures finish them off and they would get the ultimate shame for their death. The Jews would not deny and execute a criminal burial either, but they would not let you be buried with the rest of the family. You're gonna be buried outside in kind of a shameful criminal plot area. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So we know Nicodemus is pretty strong. I don't know if he carried it by himself. It's not exaggerative. They would use this much many pounds to honor people and to do this. And presumably they would lay down a big linen and put the spices on, put the body and they would fold the linen back over. Put them in, put the spices probably around the body and maybe even underneath. Why would they do this? To help with the smell of putrefaction. So they weren't doing any kind of mummification like the Egyptians would do. There's no organs coming out. There's nothing like that. They're merely helping with the smell of the body. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Today we have been blessed to see in John 19, the reality of Jesus' death. You can't miss this. This death is not another death. 
It is the most significant death in the entire world because in this death, God put his plan of salvation to rescue you, I, our kids, our future kids from our sins. And it is such irony. The Jews rejected him, but we know why, because they were full of unbelief. We know they rejected him as Messiah, but ironically, he was. They said he claimed to be the son of God. Can you imagine kids taking their dad to court? This guy keeps claiming to be our dad and to tell us what to do. We don't want a restraining order. We want him dead. That's in a sense what they're doing here. He's not making himself to be the son of God. He is. Did you see what he did? Did you hear what he said? You can't find any fault. Put it together. (laughs) He was executed as a criminal, but he was innocent. The Jews and the Romans seem like they're manhandling him, moving him from here to there and smacking and this and mocking. But who's in control of this whole thing? The sovereign hand of God accomplishing salvation according to his scriptures and our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we respond to this? The same way you were to respond to this entire gospel, you're to believe it. You're to go, I believe that your death, Jesus, was for my sins. I recognize my sins. I've messed up. I've cheated. I've lied. I've lusted. I've stolen, committed adultery in my heart. And I need you to forgive me. And I believe your death paid that for me. Would you please save me? And you bow your knee to him as the savior of your sins and the Lord of your life. And what happens? You are made a new creation. You are adopted into his family. God hits the gavel, bang, 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 righteous. You are justified in my sight because Christ did everything for you. But if you would be so stubborn or hard-hearted not to believe, you will be in trouble and I don't want that for anybody. I beg of you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Pastor Chuck read earlier, when you call upon the Lord, when you believe upon him, you will be what? Save. The only way I can think of to respond to the sermon today is to take communion. And in communion, Jesus set this up so we could remember his death and we could proclaim his death until he comes again. So we are gonna do that. This is a meal for you believers. This is a celebratory meal. And these are elements. These are pictures of the gospel. And we eat it and we believe and we celebrate and proclaim the gospel until he comes and we have that wedding feast with our savior. If you are not a believer, please don't come. This is a sacred table, but we ask that you would come in faith one day and join us. Amen. During this next song, I'll invite the band up right now. During this next song, prepare your heart and come and take the elements. If you are a born again believer of Jesus Christ, And then at the end, we will partake of them together. Amen? Oh, what a savior we have. Amen? The gospel is good news, is it not? Yes, let's pray. Gracious Father, we have come to the climax of scripture that's been building since Genesis, a savior. And we know who he is because you have revealed it. Thank you for showing us. Holy Spirit, thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Father, for your great sacrifice and giving up your son. We praise you. We adore you. Bless us now to honor you in song and in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.